Um, now, Professor Houghton has already given you a map of Europe, and I just want to show this one to you as well. Um, this is a map of Europe uh, circa 1555. And uh, I know the little rubrics are a little hard to follow, but essentially everything that is in green was still within the Roman Catholic world or jurisdiction, if you will. Uh, what you have here in uh, pink uh, are the lands that were under the Lutheran faith around 1555. So those in include, as you can see, northern, central northern Germany, uh, all of uh, Scandinavia, part of Lithuania, and so on. Um, and then we have a few miscellaneous other uh, religions that we're not going to be focusing on today. Uh, and then don't uh, miss their Anglican, um, the Anglican Church, England, uh, which uh, had its own reformation in the uh, early 16th century as well. Uh, so just to give you a sense of how much things have changed, uh, in really just a few short years between 1517 with the posting of Luther's uh, 95 Theses to 1555. I want to begin with Germany because really when you think about the beginning of the Reformation, you have to begin with Germany. And uh, Charlotte Houghton has already talked about some of the theological, uh, doctrinal, events that led to the complaints, the 95 complaints that Luther posted. Um, and without going into too much detail, um, I will just say that uh, in, indeed in 1517, he posted these 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you have here actually a print of uh, the first page of that list of, com of complaints. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Luther was started off as a Roman Catholic. He was actually uh, a Augustinian monk, so he was certainly a man who had been um, a man of the, of, the, of the church, who had been uh, trained in uh, the um, doctrinal and theological issues that uh, are still embraced by the Catholic Church today. And when he posted the 95 Theses, he in no means was uh, hoping or... Uh, urging anyone to have a radical break uh, with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so we talked last time, for example, about this idea of breaking with tradition, of um, this idea of really kind of you know, rebelling against the past. But here is someone who was not intending necessarily, at least at first, to have this major break with tradition or with the past. Um, when it comes to music, Martin Luther was most interested in the idea that music needs to follow the script, needs to follow the scripture, I should say, should follow the Bible. So he believed that it was very, very important uh, to have a kind of musical style whereby the words are absolutely clear to the listener. That was one major idea behind his uh, impact on music, if you will. The other was the fact that the congregation had to be participant. Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, up to this point, you had a real division between those who were celebrating the Mass and those who were just listening to the Mass, the congregation. And Luther said, you know, we really should try to have more integration between who is celebrating 
and who is actually participating in the service. And one way to do that musically is to create music that anyone can sing, not just the vocally trained, the musically trained, but that everyone without any background can uh, partake in. To give you a sense of that, um, I'm going to play for you a, uh, an excerpt from a, a chorale melody composed by Luther himself. And we're going to try a little exercise here. I would like all of you, with no exceptions, to actually sing along. And I know some of you have not been vocally trained, have had no musical training, and that is fine. That's the point I'm trying to make, that this music is um, simple, if you will, enough for anyone to pick up. It's very tuneful music. There is nothing too complicated going on vocally. So it's something that all of us should be able to be part of. So um, you will hear the music played several times. You will have different verses. I am not necessarily interested in you singing with a German text. Uh, you can pick your favorite syllable and just actually sing the notes. All sing. Ready? I know that this is actually a hymn that you still hear in churches today, and I know that a lot of you will be familiar with this hymn, but even for those of you who are not, it's something that you can pick up just by listening, right? How many of you could say, even right now, if I say, you, please sing, you would still have that tune in your ears. And that is exactly what Luther was trying to accomplish, to write music that was accessible to anyone so that you became part of the religious service. Now, I want to show you how other composers um, slightly later appropriated this idea of having music that was you know, of a wide and simple enough nature for anyone to sing. Uh, something else that I want to point out before we move on is that the um, melody you just heard, the uh, chorale melody by Luther, is actually a work, is actually a melody that was derived in part from a fourth century Roman Catholic Gregorian chant. So when we think about the theme we investigated last time of you know, breaking with tradition, but still kind of hanging on to it at the same time, I think you see that very clearly in this example. Um, and we're not going to go into the details of showing you the original chant and the melody and comparing the two, but just trust me that he is writing a new melody that is very much based, very much derived on the melody of a Roman Catholic 4th century Gregorian chant. Good. Now, um, let's look at an example from the period that we are investigating in this seminar. Uh, something from, well, a few years beyond, but that's okay, 10 years beyond. Uh, 1619, uh, Michael Pretorius, a great composer of the early 17th century, uh, comes along. He 
takes the same Lutheran chorale that you just heard and incorporates that into a wonderful piece of music that I'm going to share with you. And by the way, this is a recording uh, by Apollo Spire, the same ensemble that you heard here at Penn State as part of our Moments of Change series back in November. Uh, and keep in mind that that tune is still very prominent. It, the music is a bit more complicated. What happens in other, you have instruments, you have voices, the instruments are adding some sort of more complexity, but the vocal part is still very straightforward, still something that anyone in a congregation would be able to sing. And here it is. little instrumental intro and now come the voices with the same melody you heard earlier we're looking at music from 100 years after uh, Luther, that element is still absolutely fundamental to Lutheran music in the early 17th century. Now we're going to move on another century and a bit uh, forward in time, actually about a century, uh, 1725, the great music of Johann Sebastian Bach. We'll, we are well beyond the period of investigation, but just to give you a flavor of how this tradition continues through time, and we could keep going into the late 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, now, we all have a basic sense of the genius of, jo of Johann Sebastian Bach, I am sure. Uh, his music is highly complex, um, contrapuntally, a lot of the elements of his music are um, not straightforward, very, very cerebral, if you will. Um, but I'm going to show you two excerpts derived from the same cantata, uh, the same church piece, the same cantata. One is um, in a style that you could, um, if you want to know the technical word, define as homophonic. That basically means a choral block chord style. Uh, versus the other excerpt that is actually very complex in many ways, but the constant element is that chorale melody that the congregation can sing. So even though you have a lot of busy work on the bottom, on the very top of that, you hear that tune. So here's the first example. from the same cantata, and this is the one that has all the complex, busy work on the bottom, but that sort of ide fix of that chorale tune on the very top. Mm -hmm. 
interruption there. Um, okay, so that was Germany. That, those were the, 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 the basic elements behind Lutheran music, beginning with Luther himself, continuing into the 17th century, and a little bit of a sneak view at the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. How did the Catholic Church react to these major changes that were happening in Germany and other Protestant lands? Well, they put together a gathering, if you will, of uh, the top clergy, including many of the cardinals, the pope himself. Uh, they met in the northern Italian city of Trent. It was a very long meeting, lasting from 1545 to 1563. Um, uh -huh, like a faculty meeting, yes, I would have to agree with that. And uh, they met, and they talked, and they talked, and they talked. And uh, the last year, in 1563, they finally got the topic of music. And the first thing they, they, they discussed was, well, we have to agree with Luther and with the Lutherans in general that our Roman Catholic music has become too complex. We need to simplify our music. However, they were not willing to... Um, to move away from the choral contrapuntal, meaning uh, lots of voices going on at the same time, tradition that had been in the Catholic Church for so many years. So it was kind of a compromise. The compromise was, let's maintain that complexity. Uh, let's keep the Latin, which is the language of the church. We're not going to go to German or English or any vernacular language. Let's keep the Latin. But let's try, as much as we can, to have a style that makes the music a little bit clearer, a little bit more transparent. And I'm trying not to use too many technical terms here to make this um, easy to understand for everyone in this audience. Um, now, this kind of style is referred to today as the Palestrina style. We talked about Palestrina once before in the seminar, and Palestrina was one of those composers who kind of took this project to heart and said, uh-huh, I think this can be accomplished, and I'm going to start writing music that is very much in that style. Here is an excerpt. Um, let's listen and look at the sort of stylistic elements that I have listed here. So we could talk about this at length, I could show you the scores, and we could really analyze the music, but suffice it to say that this music sounds calm, serene, controlled. Each voice is treated absolutely equally. There is no one voice that dominates, and that was something you heard in some of the examples we had earlier. Uh, but in this case, every voice is very much equal, and the texture becomes more transparent, allowing better text comprehension. So it was a bit of a compromise. But it's a compromise that uh, certainly was well-received and that continued to last uh, many centuries after the actual Counter-Reformation. Counter We're going to move to England, and then this segue into what uh, Linda Woodbridge will be talking to you about a bit here. Um, one composer that I want to focus on, and that is William Byrd, because he's a very interesting case of a composer who was actually, who remained a Catholic, 
uh, a Roman Catholic, uh, within, at the service of Anglican England, of the Anglican Church. And uh, he was very well versed in both of the traditions, both the Roman Catholic tradition, the Palestrina style tradition, if you will, and the tradition uh, of the Anglican Church. What was the tradition of the Anglican Church in terms of music? Uh, well, the Anglicans, the Church of England developed a style that was still choral. After all, the English still today have this incredible choral tradition. Go to any even song in any cathedral in England, and I know that some of you have been there, and you know what I'm talking about, this great choral tradition. So they wanted to maintain this tradition. Uh, but they decided to change everything to the vernacular. Uh, so everything became sung in English instead of Latin. Um, and there's another interesting element, and that is that we'll be talking about this in the future, but the English were very fond of the madrigal as a genre. And there's something that, that can be referred to as, as a madrigalism, meaning something in music that is very descriptive. For example, if you have text that is, she came running down from the hill, referring to, I don't know, a nymph. The nymph came running down the hill. And the music goes bum, 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 bum. You know, there's a scalar downward motion. Or um, I want to sing all together. And you have the whole choir singing together. So these kind of descriptive elements are known as madrigalisms. And you hear a lot of these within the realm of church music uh, in England as well. Here is one example. Uh, this is some from a famous faux anthem, um, a church um, um, genre that developed in England in this period. And uh, at one point, you hear the words, blow the trumpet in the new moon. And it really sounds very trumpet-like, very fanfare-like. And here is that example. So I think you all hear that fanfare, trumpet-like music that is a kind of madrigalism, very typical of English music uh, in the Anglican tradition. Um, I will skip the, look, the last excerpt, which was just another example of bird writing in the Palestrina-style type of tradition. Latin, uh, very much like Palestrina's music himself. That's all for me. for me. Thank you.